I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line. I'm joined today by Jeff Bowman, Lynn Stewart, and Barry Conway. We're all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre, and we're here to offer you a very special Christmas show. As in years past, we started out earlier this year wanting to put together a unique presentation, different from Christmas shows we've done in the past. Yes, we do love O. Henry's Gift of the Magi and Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales, but we thought we might attempt a local version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol this year. Yet, by late spring, that dastardly COVID-19 pandemic pretty much put the kibosh to that idea. It's simply not wise, and we didn't have to consult the three wise men or wise women or whoever passes for Dr. Fauci and his Canadian and Ontario sidekicks these days to figure that one out. So, no, we couldn't bring together the full force of our happy-go-lucky Apiango Readers Theatre troupe to rehearse and perform this week for a live audience in the old Barry's Bay train station, our favourite stage in the whole wide world. To say that we are disappointed by the slings and arrows of such outrageous pandemic misfortunes would be a wild understatement. But we also know there are too many people who have suffered fates far worse than our lucky troop. So we're happy to help out in any way we can by simply staying home this Christmas. Still, what could we do? Our usual stable of three dozen excellent readers has been reduced to barely a half dozen stalwart performers all operating from their homes in what we call our remote studios. In most cases, that's just a fancy phrase for holding a script under a flashlight in one hand, an iPad or cell phone in another, and recording in a room no bigger than an old clothes closet. Surprisingly, it seems to work remarkably well. But what could we possibly do using those remote studios that would be well, remotely interesting this year to make our Christmas show special, and that would feel even more unique than in the past few years when we crammed ourselves into the old Barry's Bay train station or into a small hall in Whitney or Madawaska and somehow found magic in the faces of an appreciative live audience huddled inside against the cold and blowing snow outside. What could we do? Well, As it turned out, we did indeed find something truly unique. As luck would have it, we discovered, more by sheer serendipitous tomfoolery than any brilliant plan, three short stories, all with a curious local angle. All of them will not only amaze you, but, if truth be told, and it must, all of them amazed us when we realized what we had stumbled upon. The first story is by James Elverson, once the owner and editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of those American daily newspapers famous the world over. Only this story was published in that newspaper in 1912, 108 years ago this very week. And unbeknownst to most of its early 20th century readers, it's a story about something we actually know quite a bit about in these parts. It's called Lost on the Limit, and it takes place between Lake Apiango and Bark Lake, when J.R. Booth and E. Henry Bronson once jointly owned a large timber limit late in the 19th century in what is now Algonquin Park. Indeed, there is enough documentary truth in this fictional story for those of us familiar with the upper Madawaska and Apiango River valleys to know its author must have heard firsthand the makings of this tale, from somebody who had experienced something very similar. 
but enough analysis. Here is the world podcast premiere of that little-known Christmas classic once made famous on the streets of Philadelphia 108 years ago, but that we think deserves to be made famous once again. It's called Lost on the Limit and was written by James Elverson. It's read today by Jeff Bowman in his remote studio near Whitney, which incidentally is only a stone's throw from where the central action of this tale takes place. I wish you had taken my advice and stayed at the shanty, Harry. The speaker was a stalwart young man, so closely wrapped in a blue blanket that only a portion of his face showed itself, and the one he spoke to was a boy of sixteen, similarly dressed. I felt more than half afraid of this storm overtaking us, the young man continued, and now we're in a pretty fix. I can't imagine how we'll ever reach the depot. There was something so despondent in his tone that one might have expected his words to exercise a dispiriting effect upon his young companion. But instead of that, Harry answered brightly, Reach the depot, of course we will, and a good time for our Christmas dinner, too. You mustn't worry on my account, Mr. Maynard. If anything should happen, it'll all be my own fault. You know, you wouldn't be the least bit to blame. Mr. Maynard shook his head. It's very good of you to say so, Harry, but I can't help feeling responsible all the same. Ow, he cried with a gesture of irritated protest against the situation. What a plague this snow is. Surely we had enough of it already and didn't need this storm. John Maynard was the Bush superintendent on one of the great lumber limits of Booth and Bronson, the millionaire lumberman of Canada. The duty devolved upon him of driving about from one shanty, as the permanent camps of the log cutters are called, to another, taking account of the work done and giving directions as to the bunches of timber next to be attacked. This was a very arduous occupation, entailing as it did long and lonely drives through forest roads, passable only in winter, and across broad frozen lakes and along the winding courses of ice-bound rivers. For this purpose, he had a pair of powerful horses and a low, strong sleigh, made altogether of wood, that had accommodation for just two persons and some luggage. As a rule, he made these journeys alone, but this winter he'd been favored with a companion in Harry Bronson, the eldest son of a member of the firm. He'd asked permission to spend the winter at the shanties. His request had been readily granted, for he would have to take his father's place in the business in due time, and the more thoroughly he knew its details, the better. Consequently, Mr. Bronson was very glad to let him go. While Harry rejoiced at getting away from the confinement of the office and at the prospect of having some exciting experiences before he returned. So far, he'd been having a very good time. John Maynard was as pleasant a companion as he was a competent bush superintendent, and while going the round of the shanties, there were many chances for shots at grouse or rabbits, and always the exciting possibilities of encountering a bear. Then, at the shanties, their welcome was always so warm, and the French-Canadian shantymen were so amusing with their exhaustless fund of songs and dance and stories that Harry never knew what it was to feel dull for a moment. Christmas week found him at the shanty on the Opiongo, the one that stood farthest away of all from the depot at which Maynard made his headquarters, and to which it was his intention to return in time to celebrate Christmas there. 
The superintendent was particularly anxious to get back by that time because, having completed a round of the shanties, he could leave them unvisited for a fortnight or so, and he proposed to spend Christmas week in Montreal, where he had many friends. Harry, for his part, was hardly less eager to get to the depot, for although he did not intend going any farther, he had been promised lots of fun there by the clerk in charge and a first-class Christmas dinner into the bargain. Accordingly, when certain infallible signs of a change for the worse in the weather, which had hitherto been almost perfect, made their appearance, and Maynard, willing to take any risk himself, but reluctant to expose Harry to danger, suggested that the boy should remain at the Opiongo shanty until the threatened storm passed, and then get back to the depot by one of the ordinary teams. Harry would not hear of it. No, no, Mr. Maynard, said Harry stoutly. If you can stand the storm, I can too. I'm going with you. Clearly enough, the superintendent would have to either allow Harry to accompany him or stay at the shanty himself. He could not accept the latter alternative, so he replied, Very well then, my boy, we'll start, and if bad weather catches us, we'll have to do the best we can. The distance between the Opiongo shanty and the depot as the crow flies was 50 miles. But the circuitous route that was necessary in order to avoid ranges of rocky hills and impassable gullies made it full half as long again, and in view of the state of the road, Maynard calculated that two days might be required to make their destination. Accordingly, they set out in the morning of the second day before Christmas. It hardly needed the practiced eye of a wood ranger to foretell a coming change in the weather. The sun's bright face was hidden behind a dense veil of sullen clouds. The air that had been so crisp and clear now seemed dank and heavy like a dungeon. And both man and beast moved about in a listless way as if every moment were an effort. More than once the superintendent's mind misgave him ere they had gone many miles. He was naturally a cautious, far-seeing man, not disposed to run unnecessary risks, although utterly regardless of personal peril in any matter of duty. Not that he felt any concern on his own account, but he would have felt much easier in his mind had Harry been persuaded to stay at the shanty. Yet how could he reasonably expect that when he himself was pushing on to the depot? Harry's argument that if the superintendent could stand the storm, he could also was not easy to answer, and it had prevailed. If this confounded road was only in better shape, we might get there tonight, said Maynard impatiently. That afternoon, as the sleigh slowly told up a steep ascent, the horses sinking above their fetlocks in the fine, dry snow at every step, had their way been as well broken as a city street, they might have accomplished this feat. But under the circumstances, the best they could hope for was to reach the depot early on Christmas Eve. Harry, understanding that he was the chief object of the superintendent's concern, felt it incumbent upon him to take as hopeful a view of matters as possible, so he responded in his usual cheerful tone, Oh, we'll get there tomorrow afternoon right enough. We're more than halfway to Wolf Howl now, aren't we? Yes, a good bit more, but there's still a little snow beginning. We must drive ahead as fast as we can. It'll be dark. The horses accordingly were urged to the utmost speed possible, and by dint of some rather reckless driving, Wolf Hollow was safely reached in the face of a blinding snowstorm ere darkness fell. At this place there stood a shanty which had been abandoned some years before, all the timber being cut in the neighborhood, and here Mr. Maynard proposed to spend the night. 
The building was found to be in good condition, quite stormproof, in fact, and it did not take long to gather an abundant supply of firewood wherewith to expel the cold, damp air that filled it. The horses, of course, could not be left out, exposed to the pitiless storm, so they were allotted the farthest corner of the long, low room. The sleigh, too, was brought inside with all its contents. A substantial supper was prepared and enjoyed, the horses given a good feed of oats, and then, both the travellers being thoroughly tired, they fitted up one of the bunks with the sleigh robes, and so as not to waste heat, lay down side by side, and were soon sound asleep. At daylight, the superintendent got up and hastened to see how matters looked outside. The prospect was anything but cheering. Snow had been falling heavily all night, and there seemed no sign of its ceasing. All marks of the road were completely obliterated by heavy drifts, and it would evidently test to the utmost of his knowledge of woodcraft to keep on the right track. Such was the condition of affairs that called forth the exclamation reported at the beginning of this story. However, there was nothing to gain by delay, so, hardly waiting to snatch a bite of food and to allow the horses to finish their portion of oats, they harnessed up and drove forth into the storm. Even had the track been easily distinguished, they could not have made rapid progress, for the snow came in big blinding flakes that were very bewildering and had already covered the ground to the depth of nearly a foot. By the aid of familiar landmarks, Mr. Maynard was able for a time to direct their course accurately enough, but about midday they reached a wide lake which they had to cross, and here their real difficulties began. The broad expanse of Loon Lake had presented a fine playground for the wind, and upon it the snow was heaped up in vast drifts, far surpassing anything met with in the woods where the trees afforded protection. In these drifts, the horses and sleigh soon stuck so fast that their extrication was evidently beyond the power of the passengers. There seemed no alternative but to abandon them to their fate and to continue this journey on snowshoes, which, fortunately, were lashed to the back of the sleigh. Mr. Maynard felt sorely reluctant to desert his faithful horses, but no time could be spared for unveiling regrets. "'There's no help for it, Harry,' he said resolutely. We'll have to leave them where they are. We can't get them out, and we've enough to do to look after ourselves. The poor creatures whinnied appealingly as their human companions moved off and made a frantic attempt to follow, but the remorseless snowdrift held them fast. It was certainly a pity to leave two such fine animals to perish, but what could he be done? Striding along on the snowshoes in the use of which they were both expert, the superintendent and Harry made better progress than they had been doing in the sleigh, and now the chief anxiety was to hit the right spot on the other side of the lake where the tote road continued through the woods. On a clear day, Mr. Maynard would have found little difficulty in doing this, but in the midst of a blinding snowstorm, it was no easy task. Yet, their very lives depended upon its successful accomplishment. When they reached the middle of the lake, they were dismayed to discover the heavily falling snow hid not only the shore for which they were making, but the one which they had left. They were absolutely without a mark to guide them. This was an unexpected peril. Mr. Maynard halted and strove to peer through the ominous obscurity of white, but on every side it was the same. "'What are we to do now, Harry?' he cried in a tone of deep concern." I can't make out our way at all. 
By this time, Harry's spirits, which had hitherto been keeping up bravely, were beginning to fall, for he was growing weary of the long struggle with the storm. I'm sure I don't know, he responded ruefully. I suppose, I suppose there's nothing else to do but to push ahead and take our chances of hitting the shore somewhere. That's about all, Harry, was the superintendent's reply. Just rest a minute to get your breath, and then we'll make a dash for it. For a little space, they stood still and silent, the mind of each absorbed in anxious thought. And then Mr. Maynard called out, Come along now, Harry. Keep right in my tracks, and I'll see if I can't make the shore all right. For half an hour they toiled steadily onward, and well it was for both that they had such skill in the use of their snowshoes. Without them they could not have made a hundred yards headway, so heavy was the snow. Even as it was, the hard work told upon Harry, and presently he had to call to his companion. Hold on a bit, Mr. Maynard. I'm, I'm out of breath. The superintendent stopped short and came back to him. Not played out already, are you, Harry? He asked, looking anxiously into his face. Oh, no, said the boy, making a gallant effort at a reassuring smile. I just, uh, I just want to get my wind, that's all. This abominable storm nearly suffocates me. As they rested again for a few minutes, the wind suddenly shifted, parting the whirling snow to right and left. And through the rift this made, Mr. Maynard's keen eyes caught a glimpse of a dark mass rising dimly into the air a little more than a mile away. With a shout of joy, he slapped his companion upon the back, crying, Eagle Rock, Harry, see? And he pointed with a quivering finger to the spectral appearance. Once we make that, I can find the road all right enough. Come, come along. Cheered by the sight, which the next moment the snow curtain again hid from them, they pushed forward with renewed energy. It was terribly hard walking. Their snowshoes sank deep into the drifts at every step, and it was an effort each time to release them. The afternoon was also waning fast, and they had not more than an hour of daylight left at best. Truly, they were in desperate straits. On they went over the drifts that seemed determined to bar their way, the superintendent straining his eyes for another glimpse of Eagle Rock. At last, as Harry was once more about to cry halt, his companion exclaimed joyfully, There's Eagle Rock, Harry. I see it. We're making straight for it. A few more minutes and it will be there. The cheering announcement revived the boy's failing energies for another effort. He shut his lips upon the request for rest, and doggedly tramped on after his guide. Ten minutes more, and they were at the foot of the lofty crag called Eagle's Rock, in a friendly recess of which they found welcome shelter from the furious wind. Thank goodness, shouted Harry, throwing himself wearily down upon the snowbank. We've got this far anyway. How many miles yet, Mr. Maynard? About ten, Harry, was the answer, given in quite a matter-of-fact tone. Ten! echoed Harry in dismay. I hoped it would only be about five. I'll never do it. Oh, yes, you will, my boy, replied Mr. Maynard. I'll help you, you know. To their vast relief, the snow now began to abate and presently ceased falling altogether. Well, that's something to be thankful for, said the superintendent. Are you ready to start again? Go ahead, was the response. But no sooner had one danger passed than another presented itself. The light began to fail, for night was at hand. A ten-mile tramp on snowshoes through the desolate forest was not much to be desired under any circumstance. 
To accomplish it in the dark, exceedingly tired as they both were already, was a feat the achieving of which seemed more than doubtful. Mr. Maynard had his misgivings, but he carefully concealed them from his companion, and even started whistling a lively march as he led the way along the faintly discernible road. Never will either of them forget that awful tramp. The night soon enfolded them, leaving only the scant light of the glimmering stars for guidance. Every step they took had to be carefully considered, lest they should stray from the track and be hopelessly lost. Again and again, the silence through which they marched was broken by the blood-curdling cry of the lynx or the dismal howl of the wolf, seeking what they might devour. The superintendent's rifle hung at his back, and Harry had a good revolver, but they prayed in their hearts that they might have no occasion to use them. Every little while they had to pause that the boy might take a brief rest. Then on they went again. Mile after mile of the dreary, toilsome way was slowly yet steadily overcome, each one adding to poor Harry's weariness until he felt as if he must give up the struggle and throw himself down in the snow to die. But Mr. Maynard cheered him up and helped him and kept him going, knowing well that to give up really did mean death. At last the exhausted boy sank down with a piteous wail. It's no use, Mr. Maynard. I can't take another step. Oh, yes, you can, Harry, said the superintendent. Just take a little rest, and then you'll be all right. While Harry rested, he went on ahead a short distance, for it seemed to him they could not be far from the depot. Presently, there came from him a glad hurrah, and running back, he put his arm around his companion and helped him to his feet, exclaiming joyfully, I can see a light, Harry. We're safe now. It's the depot. And he was right. They were within half a mile of their haven. Forgetting all their weariness, they put on a gallant spurt, and in the less than ten minutes, they were in the midst of their friends telling the story of their thrilling experience. And all's well that ends well. The superintendent kept his appointments in Montreal. Harry had a royal Christmas time with the shanty clerks in the depot, and the horses were not lost after all, for a relief party that went out the following morning with a big sledge found them still alive and brought them and their sleigh back to the depot, little the worse for their long imprisonment in the snowdrift. That was Lost on the Limit by James Elverson, read by Jeff Bowman. It was first published in the Philadelphia Inquirer on December 15, 1912, and had been reprinted in several other American newspapers at that time. But to our knowledge, Lost on the Limits has never been reprinted, broadcast, or even podcast since the early 20th century. And we think that's a crying shame. So we set out this Christmas to right that heinous wrong. Call us biased, but Lost on the Limit deserves, at the very least, an annual reading at the old Barry's Bay train station as much as any other old world-famous writer of Christmas classics might merit. So move over, Mr. Dickens. We'll be back next year with a live performance of that preceding tale. Which brings us to our second story. As many of our listeners know, we've always had a passion for world-famous Canadian writers such as Stephen Leacock, Robert Service, and Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author of Anne of Green Gables. And so it should come as no surprise that we thought that perhaps Ms. Montgomery, a well-known and very prolific short story writer, who is hard at work around the same time as Jane Elverson was composing his Lost on the Limit, well, given Ms. Montgomery's international reputation, we thought, 
why not try to find one of her Christmas short stories, if only to give the Philadelphia Inquirer a run for its money with a little homegrown Canadian talent. Well, did we hit the jackpot. Not only did we find a wonderful Christmas story penned by Lucy Maud Montgomery, but we found a story that takes place on a passenger train heading to Pembroke. And the main action definitely takes place in a big snowstorm near Pembroke on Christmas Eve, early in the 20th century. The year was probably 1902, certainly towards the end of the Boer War, after Canadian soldiers were returning from South Africa, and at least one of them found himself on that train, heading back to Pembroke. Here, then, is Lucy Maud Montgomery's classic Christmas tale Aunt Cyrilla's Christmas Basket, read by Lynn Stewart. When Lucy Rose met Aunt Cyrilla coming downstairs, somewhat flushed and breathless from her ascent to the garret, with a big, flat-covered basket hanging over her plump arm, she gave a little sigh of despair. Lucy Rose had done her brave best for some years, in fact, ever since she had put up her hair and lengthened her skirts, to break Aunt Cyrilla of the habit of carrying that basket with her every time she went to Pembroke. But Aunt Cyrilla still insisted on taking it, and only laughed at what she called Lucy Rose's finicky notions. Lucy Rose had a horrible, haunting idea that it was extremely provincial for her aunt to always take the big basket, packed full of country good things, whenever she went to visit Edward and Geraldine. Geraldine was so stylish and might think it queer, and then Aunt Cyrilla always would carry it on her arm and give cookies and apples and molasses taffy out of it to every child she encountered, and just as often as not to older folks, too. Lucy Rose, when she went to town with Aunt Cyrilla, felt chagrined over all this. This goes to prove that Lucy was as yet very young and had a great deal to learn in this world. That troublesome worry over what Geraldine would think nerved her to make a protest in this instance. Now, Aunt Cyrilla, she pleaded, you're surely not going to take that funny old basket to Pembroke this time, Christmas Day and all. Deed and deed I am, returned Aunt Cyrilla briskly as she put it on the table and proceeded to dust it out. I never went to see Edward and Geraldine since they were married that I didn't take a basket of good things along with me for them, and I'm not going to stop now. As for its being Christmas, all the more reason. Edward is always real glad to get some of the old farmhouse goodies. He says they beat city cooking all hollow, and so they do. But it's so countrified, moaned Lucy Rose. Well, I am countrified, said Aunt Cyrilla firmly, and so are you. And what's more, I don't see that it's anything to be ashamed of. You've got some real silly pride about you, Lucy Rose. You'll grow out of it in time, but just now it is giving you a lot of trouble. That basket is a lot of trouble, said Lucy Rose crossly. You're always mislaying it or afraid you will. And it does look so funny to be walking through the streets with that big bulgy basket hanging on your arm. I'm not a mite worried about its looks, returned Aunt Cyrilla calmly. As for it being a trouble, why, maybe it is, but I have that, and other people have the pleasure of it. Edward and Geraldine don't need it, I know that, but there may be those that will. And if it hurts your feelings to walk alongside of a countrified old lady with a countrified basket, why, you can just fall behind, as it were. And Cyrilla nodded and smiled good-humouredly, and Lucy Rose, though she privately held to her own opinion, had to smile too. Now, let me see, said Aunt Cyrilla reflectively, tapping the snowy kitchen table with the point of her plump, dimpled forefinger. What shall I take? Um, that big fruitcake for one thing. Edward does like my fruitcake. 
and that cold boiled tongue for another. Uh, those three mince pies too, they'd spoil before we got back or your uncle would make himself sick eating them. Mince pie is his besetting sin. And that little stone bottle full of cream. Geraldine may carry any amount of style, but I've yet to see her look down on real good country cream, Lucy Rose. And another bottle of my raspberry vinegar. That plate of jelly cookies and donuts will please the children and fill up the chinks, and you can bring me that box of ice cream candy out of the pantry and that bag of striped candy sticks your uncle brought home from the corner last night. Oh, and apples, of course. Three or four dozen of those good eaters um, and a little pot of my green gauge preserves. Edward will like that. And some sandwiches and pound cake for a snack for ourselves. Now, I guess that will do for eatables. Um, the presents for the children can go in on top. There's a doll for Daisy and the little boat your uncle made for Ray and a tatted lace handkerchief apiece for the twins and the crochet hood for the baby. Now, is that all? Well, there's a cold roast chicken in the pantry, said Lucy Rose wickedly, and the pig Uncle Leo killed is hanging up in the porch. Couldn't you put them in too? Aunt Cyrilla smiled broadly. Well, I guess we'll leave the pig alone, but since you have reminded me of it, the chicken may as well go in. I can make room. Lucy Rose, in spite of her prejudices, helped with the packing, and, not having been trained under Aunt Cyrilla's eye for nothing, did it very well, too, with much clever economy of space. But when Aunt Cyrilla had put in as a finishing touch a big bouquet of pink and white everlastings and tied the bulging covers down with a firm hand, Lucy Rose stood over the basket and whispered vindictively, Some day I'm going to burn this basket when I get courage enough. Then there will be an end of it lugging it everywhere we go like, like an old market woman. Uncle Leopold came in just then, shaking his head dubiously. He was not going to spend Christmas with Edward and Geraldine, and perhaps the prospect of having to cook and eat his Christmas dinner all alone had made him pessimistic. I mistrust you folks won't get to Pembroke tomorrow, he said sagely. It's going to storm. Aunt Cyrilla did not worry over this. She believed matters of this kind were foreordained, and she slept calmly. But Lucy Rose got up three times in the night to see if it were storming. And when she did sleep, she had horrible nightmares of struggling through blinding snowstorms, dragging Aunt Cyrilla's Christmas basket along with her. It was not snowing in the early morning, and Uncle Leopold drove Aunt Cyrilla and Lucy Rose and the basket to the station four miles off. When they reached there, the air was thick with flying flakes. The station master sold them their tickets with a grim face. If there's any more snow comes, the trains might as well keep Christmas too, he said. There's been so much snow already that traffic is blocked half the time, and now there ain't no place to shovel the snow off onto. Aunt Cyrilla said that if the train were to get to Pembroke in time for Christmas, well, it would get there. And she opened her basket and gave the station master and three small boys an apple apiece. That's the beginning, groaned Lucy Rose to herself. When their train came along, Aunt Cyrilla established herself in one seat and her basket in another and looked beamingly around at her fellow travelers. These were few in number. A delicate little woman at the end of the car with a baby and four other children. A young girl across the aisle with a pale, pretty face. A sunburned lad, three seats ahead in a khaki uniform. A very handsome, imposing old lady in a sealskin coat ahead of him. And a thin young man with spectacles opposite. A minister, reflected Aunt Cyrilla, beginning to classify, who takes better care of other folks' souls than of his own body. And that woman in the sealskin is discontented and cross at something. 
got up too early to catch the train, maybe. And that young chap must be one of the boys not long out of hospital. That woman's children look as if they hadn't enjoyed a square meal since they were born. And if that girl across from me has a mother, I'd like to know what that woman means, letting her daughter go from home in this weather in clothes like that. Lucy Rose merely wondered uncomfortably what the others thought of Aunt Cirilla's basket. They expected to reach Pembroke that night, but as the day wore on, the storm grew worse. Twice the train had to stop while the train hands dug it out. The third time it could not go on. It was dusk when the conductor came through the train, replying brusquely to the questions of the anxious passengers. Oh, a nice lookout for Christmas. Nope, impossible to go on or back. Track blocked for miles. What's that, madam? No, no station near. Woods for miles. We're here for the night. These storms of late have played the mischief with everything. Oh, dear, groaned Lucy Rose. Aunt Cirilla looked at her basket complacently. At any rate, we won't starve, she said. The pale, pretty girl seemed indifferent. The sealskin lady just looked crosser than ever. Khaki boy said, Ah, oh, just my luck. And two of the children began to cry. Aunt Cirilla took some apples and striped candy sticks from her basket and carried them to them. She lifted the oldest into her ample lap and soon had them all around her, laughing and contented. The rest of the travelers straggled over to the corner and drifted into conversation. The khaki boy said it was hard lines not to get home for Christmas after all. I was invalided from South Africa three months ago and I've been in hospital at Netley ever since. Reached Halifax three days ago and telegraphed the old folks I'd eat my Christmas dinner with them and to have an extra big turkey because I didn't have any last year. They'll be badly disappointed. He looked disappointed too. One khaki sleeve hung empty by his side. Aunt Cirilla passed him an apple. We were all going down to Grandpa's for Christmas, said the little mother's oldest boy, dolefully. We've never been there before, and it's just too bad. He looked as if he wanted to cry, but thought better of it and bit off a mouthful of candy. Will there be any Santa Claus on the train, demanded his small sister tearfully. Jack says there won't. Oh, I guess he'll find you out, said Aunt Cirilla reassuringly. The pale, pretty girl came up and took the baby from the tired mother. What a dear little fellow, she said softly. Are you going home for Christmas too? asked Aunt Cirilla. The girl shook her head. I haven't any home. I'm just a shop girl out of work at present and I'm going to Pembroke to look for some. Aunt Cirilla went to her basket and took out her box of cream candy. Well, I guess we might as well enjoy ourselves. Let's eat it all up and have a good time. Maybe we'll get down to Pembroke in the morning. The little group grew cheerful as they nibbled, and even the pale girl brightened up. The little mother told Aunt Cirilla her story aside. She had been long estranged from her family, who had disapproved of her marriage. Her husband had died the previous summer, leaving her in poor circumstances. Father wrote to me last week and asked me to let bygones be bygones and come home for Christmas. I was so glad, and the children's hearts were set on it. It seems too bad that we're not going to get there. I have to be back at work the morning after Christmas. The khaki boy came up again and shared the candy. He told amusing stories of campaigning in South Africa. The minister came too and listened, and even the sealskin lady turned her head over her shoulder. By and by, the children fell asleep, one on Aunt Cirilla's lap and one on Lucy Rose's and two on the seat. Aunt Cirilla and the pale girl helped the mother make up beds for them. The minister gave his overcoat, and the sealskin lady came forward with a shawl. This will do for the baby, she said. 
We must get up some Santa Claus for these youngsters, said the khaki boy. Let's hang their stockings on the wall and fill them up as best we can. I've nothing about me but some hard cash and a jackknife. I'll give each of them a quarter and the boy can have the knife. I've nothing but money either, said the sealskin lady regretfully. Aunt Cyrilla glanced at the little mother. She had fallen asleep with her head against the seat back. I've got a basket over there, said Aunt Cyrilla firmly, and I've some presents in it that I was taking to my nephew's children. I'm going to give them to these. As for money, I think the mother is the one for it to go to. She's been telling me her story, and a pitiful one it is. Let's make up a little purse among us for a Christmas present. The idea met with favor. The khaki boy passed his cap, and everybody contributed. The sealskin lady put in a crumpled note. When Aunt Cyrilla straightened it out, she saw that it was for $20. Meanwhile, Lucy Rose had brought the basket. She smiled at Aunt Cyrilla as she lugged it down the aisle, and Aunt Cyrilla smiled back. Lucy Rose had never touched that basket of her own accord before. Ray's boat went to Jackie and Daisy's doll to his oldest sister, the twins' lace handkerchiefs to the two smaller girls and the hood to the baby. Then the stockings were filled up with doughnuts and jelly cookies and the money was put in an envelope and pinned to the little mother's jacket. That baby is such a dear little fellow, said the sealskin lady gently. He looks something like my little son. He died 18 Christmases ago. Aunt Cyrilla put her hand over the lady's kid glove. So did mine, she said. Then the two women smiled tenderly at each other. Afterwards, they rested from their labors and all had what Aunt Cyrilla called a snack of sandwiches and pound cake. The khaki boy said he hadn't tasted anything half so good since he left home. They didn't give us pound cake in South Africa, he said. When morning came, the storm was still raging. The children wakened and went wild with delight over their stockings. The little mother found her envelope and tried to utter thanks and broke down and Nobody knew what to say or do when the conductor fortunately came in and made a diversion by telling them that they might as well resign themselves to spending Christmas on the train. This is serious, said the khaki boy, when you consider that we've no provisions. Don't mind for myself. I'm used to half rations or no rations at all. But these kitties will have tremendous appetites. Then Aunt Cyrilla rose to the occasion. I've got some emergency rations here, she announced. There's plenty for all and we'll have our Christmas dinner although a cold one. Breakfast, first thing. There's a sandwich apiece left, and we must fill up on what is left of the cookies and donuts and save the rest for a real good spread at dinner time. The only thing is, I haven't any bread. I've a box of soda crackers, said the little mother eagerly. Nobody in that car will ever forget that Christmas. To begin with, after breakfast they had a concert. The khaki boy gave two recitations, sang three songs, and gave a whistling solo. Lucy Rose gave three recitations and the minister a comic reading. The pale shop girl sang two songs. It was agreed that the khaki boy's whistling solo was the best number, and Aunt Cyrilla gave him the bouquet of everlastings as a reward of merit. Then the conductor came in with the cheerful news that the storm was almost over, and he thought the track would be cleared in a few hours. If we can get to the next station, we'll be all right, he said. This branch joins the main line there, and the tracks will be clear. At noon, they had dinner. The train hands were invited in to share it. The minister carved the chicken with the brakeman's jackknife. The khaki boy cut up the tongue and the mince pies, while the sealskin lady mixed the raspberry vinegar with its due proportion of water. Bits of paper served as plates. 
The train furnished a couple of glasses. A tin pint cup was discovered and given to the children. Aunt Cyrilla and Lucy Rose and the sealskin lady drank, turn about, from the latter's graduated medicine glass. The shop girl and the little mother shared one of the empty bottles, and the khaki boy, the minister, and the train men drank out of the other bottle. Everybody declared they had never enjoyed a meal more in their lives. Certainly, it was a merry one, and Aunt Cyrilla's cooking was never more appreciated. Indeed, the bones of the chicken and the pot of preserves were all that was left. They could not eat the preserves because they had no spoons, so Aunt Cyrilla gave them to the little mother. When all was over, a hearty vote of thanks was passed to Aunt Cyrilla and her basket. The sealskin lady wanted to know how she made her pound cake, and the khaki boy asked for her receipt for jelly cookies. And when two hours later the conductor came in and said the snow plows had got along and they'd soon be starting, they all wondered if it could really be less than 24 hours since they met. I feel as if I'd been campaigning with you all my life, said the khaki boy. At the next station, they all parted. The little mother and the children had to take the next train back home. The minister stayed there, and the khaki boy and the sealskin lady changed trains. The sealskin lady shook Aunt Cyrilla's hand. She no longer looked discontented or cross. This has been the pleasantest Christmas I have ever spent, she said heartily. I shall never forget that wonderful basket of yours. The little shop girl is going home with me. I've promised her a place in my husband's store. When Aunt Cyrilla and Lucy Rose reached Pembroke, there was nobody to meet them because everyone had given up expecting them. It was not far from the station to Edward's house and Aunt Cyrilla elected to walk. I'll carry the basket, said Lucy Rose. Aunt Cyrilla relinquished it with a smile. Lucy Rose smiled too. It's a blessed old basket, said the latter, and I love it. Please forget all the silly things I ever sent about it, Aunt Cyrilla. That was Lucy Maud Montgomery's Aunt Cyrilla's Christmas Basket, read by Lynn Stewart. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that we, here at the Opionga Readers Theatre, love a good story involving railroads. Certainly, as many locals know, when the COVID pandemic is not cramping our performance style, the Opionga Readers Theatre troupe rehearses and performs for live audiences and that wonderful little theatre that can only comfortably seat 50 people or so the old Barry's Bay train station. But another reason we love train stories has something to do with our executive producer's wayward youth. You see, our chief cook and bottle washer knows a thing or two about riding the rails in Canada, the United States, and Europe. In fact, back in the winter of 1974-75, when he was a discombobulated undergraduate, he chalked up over 80,000 kilometers aimlessly ping-ponging between Halifax and Vancouver, riding the old Canadian Pacific and Canadian National Transcontinental Passenger Services, the precursors to Via Rail. So when we stumbled upon Lucy Maud Montgomery's Christmas story about heading to Pembroke on a train in a snowstorm on Christmas Eve, well, he couldn't help but remember an old dog-eared and yellowed memoir he'd written some 45 years ago. It centers on an event that truly happened to him late one snowy Christmas Eve after arriving in Pembroke on one of those old CN transcontinental passenger trains. Here is our last story, A Christmas Wish, written and read by Barry Conway. Christmas comes but once a year, 
It's an old saw with the ring of a simple truth, but ever since I was a boy, it never made much sense. You see, I was born in Pembroke, raised in Barry's Bay, and so depending on your point of view, that makes me either a village idiot or an inspired genius of Upper Ottawa Valley logic. It works like this. Whatever passes in the world at large for right reason, it's not for nothing that those of us who grew up in Renfrew County think things through for ourselves. And sometimes, well, we come up with a way of seeing things that the rest of the world can't quite see until we show them how. Take that expression, Christmas comes but once a year. That may be true for most Canadians, but not for anyone who grew up in Barry's Bay during the middle of the last century. It's that word once that sticks in our craw, as if Christmas happens only on Christmas Day. Christmas lasts much, much longer. At least it did amongst those lucky enough to have grown up in Barry's Bay in the 1950s and 60s. In fact, back then Christmas clocked in at well over three months. Three months, three days, to be exact. Christmas for most Canadians usually starts somewhere in late November, after the Grey Cup weekend. But for those bred and buttered in Barry's Bay, Christmas started in September, when anybody worth knowing in our little village got their first glimpse of Eaton's Christmas wish book. On September 21st every year, that mail-order catalogue would arrive in our post office boxes and set our village ablaze with all sorts of dazzling possibilities for the next three months and three days. We literally tore through that wish book of infinite delights, noting every item, comparing every offer, and committing to our collective unconscious every single possibility with the giddy precision of one giant communal photographic memory shared only by children. Just as biblical scholars can quote chapter and verse, so too we could cite the exact page and location of our top ten wish book choices that we hoped Santa might bring us. And when we finally did sit down to scribble off our carefully worded letters to Santa Claus, of course with the advice of our ever-helpful mothers, it was usually as the Grey Cup was wildly wrapping up, and our mothers, more often than not, were hard at work baking Christmas cakes that we wouldn't see again until Christmas Day. So no, Christmas didn't come but once a year, at least not in Barry's Bay, unless once meant that as children, Christmas consumed every waking thought for three months and three days. That's Upper Ottawa Valley logic in spades. Of course, I didn't know how peculiar that logic was until I left my little village and headed 500 miles down the road to the University of Western Ontario. That was early in the autumn of 1973, the first year there was no real Christmas in my books, because there was no Eaton's Christmas wish book delivered to my university dorm that September. Somehow, and I don't know exactly how, I managed to struggle through without a wish book that year, and so I went back again the following year, as a second-year student of English literature, but suffice it to say, things did not go well. Shortly after Thanksgiving, 1974, again without an Eaton's Christmas wish book to get me through midterms, I couldn't take it one more day. So I packed it in for that academic year and hit the road, taking all the money I had saved for my post-secondary education and turned it into a stack of American Express traveler's checks. My plan was to head to Halifax, get a job in a ship, and get the hell out of Canada forever and a day. Who could live in a country where Christmas came only once a year? Worse, who could live two years in a row without a wish book? Somehow, I hoped to finagle a job on any foreign-going ship anchored in Halifax Harbor, and preferably a tramp steamer. And after sailing the world over, I planned to register again as a student of English literature, only this time in a place like Trinity College, Dublin, a place where I suspected they knew how to keep Christmas going all year long. 
That plan, as brilliant and as bulletproof as it seemed at the time, never really worked out. Oh, I did manage to get to Halifax and get a job on a ship, or at least what I believed was a job on an oil tanker bound for Saudi Arabia. It even promised a king's ransom. But suffice it to say, the night I was to ship out, mystically heading towards the Mideast, expecting to wake up the next morning to the glimmer of rainbow colors rising brilliantly from across the Atlantic, I woke instead on a passenger train decidedly moving in a westerly direction. As it jerked itself into a snowbound siding somewhere in rural New Brunswick, I reared my head, dazed and confused, amidst the snow and mist of an early dawn. I was staring at a transcontinental train ticket for Vancouver, wondering if I had somehow been shanghaied in reverse. Even Upper Ottawa Valley Logic couldn't explain this. Ultimately, that great mystery was revealed. I found a note, hurriedly scribbled and tucked into the top pocket of my pack. It was from an old sailor I'd fallen in with in Halifax, who had put me in touch with that tanker, now long gone to Saudi Arabia. His name was Scotty, and he was the chief engineer of the Arctic Endeavour, where I had spent several glorious hours earlier that week, discussing the virtues of my seaworthy plan, while Scotty and the Endeavour awaited the details of their next voyage up the Labrador coast. He hadn't tried to dissuade me from going to sea, only he was confused as to why I was in such a hurry to abandon the country of my youth. There was a certain logic, I must admit, in his otherworldly reasoning, but still I wanted to see that other world as desperately and as quickly as I could, or as Scotty liked to put it more succinctly, under the cut of me own jib. Which is why, as I read Scotty's note on that snowbound siding in New Brunswick, I was struck as if by lightning with one brilliant line in his parting shot. Go if you must to sail your wine-dark sea, but understand first those who you leave behind. It had a certain tincture of homegrown logic that shot through me like intellectual lightning, unlike any spark I had ever felt from my professors at Western. So I decided, instantly, to take that wise sailor's implied advice. And thus I began a five-month journey through a frozen land that I still desperately wanted to leave forever. Most of that journey was by transcontinental passenger train, and all of it was haphazardly serendipitous. I was going nowhere and everywhere at the same time. All I really knew was that I couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't stay put. As soon as I arrived somewhere, I booked another ticket anywhere else. More often than not, right back in the direction I had just come. More than once, I'd get off at a train station, and whichever transcontinental passenger train happened to arrive first, eastbound or westbound, it really didn't matter. I was on it. I crisscrossed Canada more than a dozen times, never once getting beyond its borders. Sometimes I got off out in the middle of nowhere. Quebec, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, British Columbia. It really didn't matter. After lunch at some lonely windswept diner, I'd get right back on board and head in the opposite direction. I returned home to Barry's Bay only once during that long, strange journey. About a week before Christmas, while in Prince Rupert, British Columbia, I decided to buy a coach ticket due into Pembroke late on the afternoon of December 23rd. I don't remember much about that trip until the train pulled into Capriol, a station north of Sudbury. It was where eastbound passenger trains coming in from the west were split into two smaller trains, one heading to Montreal, the other for Toronto. As usual, the coach passengers were all asked to disembark while their coaches were reassigned before we were all allowed to reboard. I remember waiting in a little coffee shop, expecting to shortly board the Montreal train. It was then I started having second thoughts about going home. 
No one was expecting me. Since leaving university in mid-October, I had made no telephone calls, sent no telegrams, written no letters, and posted no postcards to let anyone anywhere know where I was, or if I was even still alive. I can't really say why. All I know was that nothing much had changed. For whatever reason, during my first four weeks of being back in university, I couldn't maintain the attention span of a tsetse fly. I couldn't concentrate long enough to read a single page of any book, let alone the dozens of books I was required to read for my English degree. But I knew if I stayed in school, I would most certainly flunk out by Christmas. Yet by that very same Christmas in 1974, I was no closer to sorting myself out. The only difference was that riding the rails, I didn't have to read or write anything. My only accomplishment throughout those five months riding the rails was to travel 50,000 miles, all while staring out a transcontinental passenger train window, and all the while enthralled, sometimes for days on end, with the fascinating stories of the people I met along the way. That, and drinking upwards of 30 cups of coffee and smoking nearly three packs of cigarettes each and every day. Still, my most memorable experience came in Pembroke. After my train came to a full stop, I stepped out of my coach, well past midnight, and onto the arrivals platform, more than a day overdue. It was well lit but empty. There was only one other person I could see, and it wasn't the station agent. It was an old man dressed in a dark gray coat, floppy galoshes, wearing no hat despite falling snow, and he was wildly roaming the platform. He moved jaggedly up and down, gawking into individual coach windows to see if there still might be someone else getting off. In response, each coach disgorged no one, only belched its infernal steam or sounded its mechanical racket. There was only him and me as that Montreal train slowly pulled away. Finally, he approached and yelled into my face, his eyes level with my shoulder. Was there nobody else who was supposed to get off? I guess not, I said, only half awake after having slept most of the trip from Capriol. Oh, was all he said, and then he turned and walked away aimlessly towards the waiting room. His shoulders slumped and his head drooped as the train clanged into the distance, a whistle blowing somewhere as it approached a crossing. With snow whipping the door into the waiting room, I thought the best thing I could do was just sleep there on one of the benches till daylight. I loitered about, pretending to thumb the yellow pages at a payphone. The next thing I knew, from behind me, a hand softly clutched my elbow. "'Are you sure there wasn't a young woman about yay-high?' The old man held his gloved hand to my shoulder. "'With brown eyes. If you saw her, you wouldn't soon forget her.' "'A lot of people got off in Capriol,' I said, matter-of-factly. "'I was in coach, so I couldn't say who was in the sleeper cars or roomettes.' "'Oh, she was in coach,' he said, assuredly. I bought her a coach ticket and sent it to her, and she said she would use it and come home for Christmas. He paused and just as quickly started talking again, as if he couldn't stop himself. It's been five years. If she wasn't going to use the ticket, she would have sent it back. She's my only daughter, our only child. His eyes welled up, desperate somehow that I might be able to explain why his daughter wasn't beside him in Pembroke at that very moment. I suspected there must have been some family drama that had played out years ago. I decided it was best to change the subject before the old man broke down into tears right there in front of me. Any idea where a fella could get a cab or a bite to eat? I asked, seeing the clock above his head was now approaching 1.40 a.m. No, he said, chuckling as if I had cracked a joke. This is Pembroke. It was as if I was supposed to know what that meant. Would the bus station be open at this time of night? I'm hoping to get to Barry's Bay. 
That bus leaves pretty early, but I doubt it's running today. It's Christmas already. Are you really that hungry? I could eat, I said, like an automaton. I guess the Pembroke Hotel wouldn't have room service at this time. No, no, I didn't mean it like that, he protested. My wife cooked this big Christmas dinner for our daughter, and it's all ready to eat, but nobody to eat it. If you want a really good meal, it would mean a lot to my wife not to let it go to waste. It was an idea straight out of Dickens. This was the Upper Ottawa Valley. There was considerable local logic to it all, and rather than end up sleeping uncomfortably in another cold train station awaiting daylight, something in me just wanted to make him feel less lost, less helpless. His only hope was to see his daughter stepping off that train, but instead all he got was me. Somehow I felt responsible. After a short silence, a silly grin rippled across his face as I said, I suppose we could both do worse, so long as I'm no trouble for your wife. You sure she wouldn't mind? He dropped his head and mumbled what he'd likely have to tell his wife, wondering aloud if I might not be an axe murderer or if she might laugh, saying he'd done it again and brought home another starving stray. As I picked up my pack, I saw his face light up like a Christmas tree. Great! That's great! he said repeatedly as we walked to his car. I don't know if he knew exactly what he was doing, nor, for that matter, did I. I was no axe murderer, but perhaps he saw in me some wishful thinking of keeping his own desperate hope alive. As we drove through the empty streets of Pembroke, I felt very much like a consolation prize at a Christmas pageant. That award they give to the least talented person for simply showing up. Nor was I entirely committed to carrying through with his generous invitation. I was hoping that perhaps, if we drove through the downtown, I might spot the Pembroke Hotel and somehow extricate myself. No such luck. He was off in the opposite direction, and before I knew it, I was being led up a neatly shoveled walkway through a middle-class front door, rimmed with blinking Christmas lights, and ushered into a living room with a white plastic Christmas tree, more blinking lights, ornaments, matching plastic poinsettias, reindeer, stockings tacked to a false mantle, and as many red, green, and tinseled thingamabobs as could be crammed onto every available ledge. Under an archway leading into the kitchen stood his wife, whose crestfallen face the moment she saw me told me everything. She didn't come, the husband blurted out immediately, upon making eye contact with her, then frantically turning away before she could say anything. He grabbed my pack and coat, and putting away his own coat and galoshes, he babbled like some used car salesman, trying to explain why this bewildered young man was in their living room at 2 a.m. Christmas morning. He's got nowhere to go. He got off the train. He was the only one. He, he said he didn't see her, or, or maybe she got on the wrong train up north or something. He was grasping at straws, and he didn't believe a word he was saying. I don't know, he continued, trailing off and frustrated and losing confidence. His wife simply stared blindly at him and then back at me, not wanting to understand a word he was saying or who I was. She knew what he meant. She knew what was happening. He's really hungry. He's from Barry's Bay. We can't let all this good Christmas cooking and baking go to waste. Stop! Just stop! She shouted. Who are you? Her question burned through me. I had no immediate answer. Pleased to meet you, ma'am, I said, finally, knowing the moment I spoke, she knew I was disingenuous. Still, I gave her my name, and like the old man, I started talking uncontrollably. There were a few young women in my coach, but I was mostly asleep for the past few hours. I was the only passenger who got off here, as far as I know, and I continued to talk until I couldn't. 
There was a long, hollow silence and a curious look on her face, as if she were making new, dangerous calculations, as if she were about to betray some family secret, but was uncertain if I merited its hearing. You couldn't have missed her, she said, slowly dropping half of her fear, but none of her pride. She is a five-year-old boy. I was in coach, I said, not understanding her comment. She would have been in coach. She wouldn't have had the money to upgrade. She barely had enough to pay for him. There was something bitter in how she said him. I wanted to run for the front door and get as far away as I could. Betty, let's just have some of your wonderful roast turkey and Christmas cake with this nice young boy. We can't let it all go to waste. Another blind stare, a moment of horrible silence, and suddenly Betty ripped off her apron and rushed for a side hallway, shouting, Suit yourself, you old fool. I said she wouldn't come. Not with that, that little b -b -b bastard in tow. Suit yourself. It's all piping hot for anybody who wants it but her. The sound of her shoes thumping down the hallway, their soles slapping the hardwood floor, was followed by a door slamming and then long, terrifying silence. I, I really should go, I said finally. I'd best be out of your way. It, it's not that I don't appreciate your hospitality. Pay no attention to Betty, the old man said firmly, gently grabbing my elbow and ushering me towards the dining room table with four festive place settings. She gets like that. She's under a lot of strain, what with Christmas. She's not got a mean bone in her body. It's just after five years. It's okay, I said. I don't need to know. Ah, but you do need to eat, he said, forcing a hollow smile. You're a strapping young lad who needs to eat. He held out a chair and looked pleadingly at me, as if I was the one last shard of sanity between the insanity that had just happened and the madness he would be facing in the morning. Do us the honor of letting us feed you first, and, and please let me tell you about our daughter. Otherwise I'm apt to go crazy. I just want you to know we're not all mad as hatters here. It won't take long, I promise you. After that, if you want, I can drive you downtown or you can stay here. Our daughter's room is all made up. You're welcome to stay here. Whether I was in my right mind or not, I can't say. What I can tell you is that I didn't make a conscious decision to remain, as much as I couldn't muster one good reason to leave. Call it Upper Ottawa Valley Logic, but I knew only one thing for certain. This man needed me to stay. There was something in his voice and a subtle, if terrified, look in his eyes that reminded me of Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the part where the wedding guest gets captivated by a sailor who won't let him go until he unburdens his soul with his inexplicable story of what happened at sea. So I sat down at that sad little dining room table early Christmas morning and I listened. The old man served up a sumptuous Christmas dinner, carving the roast turkey as if he were serving a feast fit for a king, and all the while telling me a thousand and one stories, everything from the summer miracle of his daughter's birth one brilliant sunrise, to that horrific moment, that winter after midnight, when she left town. All the while I knew he wasn't really talking to me. I was just some accidental tourist, a stand-in, a placeholder, maybe even Coleridge's wedding guest. He knew I wasn't some character who might explain his daughter's unexpected absence. Instead, he left me with the distinct impression he almost believed I was some grown-up incarnation of that five-year-old grandson he had never met. He wanted, he needed to explain everything he ever felt or believed about that little boy's fallible mother. At the dining room table with its four-place settings, he had sat me down at the one place set for a little boy. You see, he said, she was our pride and joy, our only daughter. She was born almost 15 years after we were married, our only child. Maybe because of that, we grew terrified we might lose her. 
we became the worst kind of parents. We thought we could protect her from everything. She only ended up growing ignorant of the wicked ways of the world. When she was 15, she got pregnant. She ran away somewhere out west. For nearly five years, we heard nothing. Then this Thanksgiving, we get a letter saying she wanted to come home for a visit, maybe next summer. We convinced her to come home this Christmas, secretly wishing, maybe for good. At first, she said she couldn't get the time off work, but we turned into our old selves. We thought we knew better, so we bribed her with a train ticket. Only Betty, Betty, she can't deal with it. I've never even seen his picture, but I know he's beautiful, like his mother. No matter how hard she tries, Betty only sees that worthless bum who took advantage of our little girl. Honestly, she's tried her best. She can't get past it. It's her only Christmas wish to see her, to know she's okay, to see her back home safely, maybe get her to stay. It really doesn't matter what's happened in the past, he continued. We just want her home where we can take care of her. And him, both of them. We're not rich, but we can look after them honestly. We sat and we talked, or I should say the old man who loved his wife and daughter and a grandson he longed to meet more than life itself. He talked and I listened. Rationally, I know it was a long, long journey through that night, but in some ways it seemed only a few minutes before I saw out their front window first light. Shortly afterwards, I heard a bedroom door open and Betty came back all smiles, bright and cheery, as if nothing had happened. She walked past me, smiling falsely, poured herself a coffee, then came back, saying, You two geniuses still gab-festing about the price of tea in China? No, dear, said the old man, getting up and giving her a big hug and morning kiss before being pushed away. Get away, you old goat, she said, grabbing the sateen collar of her velour dressing gown and then turning to me with a solemn look. I just wanted to come out and say I'm sorry for last night. She looked awkward, as if she wanted to say something more but couldn't, as if she knew there was more to say but could find no words. Slowly, she moved behind her husband, who had reseated himself. I was a bundle of nerves, and it was way past my bedtime, waiting and waiting, and when the door opened and you came in, she paused and looking straight at me, and then she stopped talking. A new bitterness ran along her quivering lips that she attempted to hide behind her coffee cup. She seemed overcome with that earlier moment only hours before, when she realized her daughter wasn't coming home. That's okay, I said, trying to alleviate her anguish. I have that effect on a lot of people. There was no shock of recognition until they figured out my attempt at humor, and then both burst out laughing nervously. As their laughter died out, it was replaced with the lonesome tick-tocking of the kitchen clock as it struck its 7 a.m. chime. Well, what do you know, she said, trying to raise a smile. Time for a good old-fashioned breakfast. She was trying to fill another hopeless silence, like some waitress trying to keep busy and distracted in an empty diner. I protested as best I could, but there was no use. Both now wanted to stuff me like a Christmas goose. And so while they both prepared the meal, I sat there, comparing notes with them across the room of who we might mutually know in Pembroke or Barry's Bay. Nobody wanted to talk about Christmas. But during that conversation, I noticed on a nearby bookshelf an old familiar friend, the Eaton's Christmas Wish Book. I reached over and absentmindedly began thumbing through it. Its pages were as pristine as if that catalog had never been opened. I used to live by this book, I said. By Christmas Eve, it was all tatters, pages missing, torn to shreds, or ripped out completely. Betty glanced at me and then at her husband and finally back at me. Every year we get it, but we don't need it anymore. I don't even know why we still have it around. Her eyes were hopeless and full of repressed rage. Just as suddenly, the phone rang. The old man picked up the receiver. Yes? I'll accept. No, 
No, it's fine, really. No, never too early, really. His eyes at first were confused, then sparkled wildly. He listened intently to a one-sided conversation that lasted less than half a minute. Then the line appeared to have been disconnected. So he put the receiver back on its cradle, sat back, and started grinning like a Cheshire cat. Who was that? asked Betty, infuriated at last, and having to ask. You'll never guess. Betty's eyes flared. The old man leaped up and reached out to bear-hug his wife and dance her around the kitchen. It was Pauline! It was Pauline! She got on the wrong goddamn train! She's leaving Toronto in a few minutes! They'll be here in time for supper! There was a strange, empty pause, as if Betty didn't know whether or not to believe her husband. She froze momentarily in the middle of the kitchen after being danced in circles. Finally, she exploded with a joyful noise. Her face broke into a thousand and one pieces as her eyes began streaming a cascade of tears down her ruddy cheeks. She was laughing and crying, talking and listening, blowing her nose, dabbing her eyes all at once. With a tremendous clatter of crockery and cutlery and tissues flying in and out of her apron pockets, she blew her nose again and again and began to fly about wildly, cleaning up the breakfast dishes before becoming panic-stricken, wondering where in God's name she could possibly get another turkey on Christmas Day. I helped to clean up as best I could, but it was obvious that the best thing I could do for all of them was to be on my way. Within a few minutes, the old man had insisted on driving me downtown to the bus station, where I discovered he was right. The buses weren't running to Barry's Bay on Christmas Day. After making a quick call at a payphone outside, I waited for another hour alone. I couldn't sit still, and so paced the icy sidewalk, wondering if it wouldn't just be better to catch another train, somewhere, anywhere. Finally, a car I didn't recognize drove up, and its driver rolled down an icy window. It was my father, who mercifully smiled at me giddily, as if he had just come from some place where nobody believes that Christmas comes but once a year. That was A Christmas Wish, written and read by Barry Conway. So there you have it, our Christmas gift for all of you, our faithful listeners of the Opiongo line, and especially those of you who are also members of the Station Keepers, that local non-profit group of over 100 volunteers who spend their days and nights keeping up the old Barry's Bay train station built in 1894 and cherishing all that it stands for in 2020 and beyond. We hope you enjoyed our efforts today. And for Jeff Bowman and Lynn Stewart, I'm Kristen Marchand, along with our producer and occasional reader, Barry Conway. We wish you all a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Merry Kwanzaa, if not a happy Festivus for the rest of us. Good day and God bless.